This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we're honored to welcome to this program a great American, George Allen, former governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Honorable George Allen served the Commonwealth of Virginia for more than 20 years as governor in both bodies of the United States Congress and as a delegate holding Thomas Jefferson's seat in the Virginia General Assembly. Sworn in as governor in 1994, George Allen brought sweeping reform that made Virginia a national model in economic development, public safety, education and accountability, and creative government. As a self-described common-sense Jeffersonian conservative, Allen pushed through cutting-edge reform with bipartisan support in a legislature held by the opposition. Elected to the United States Senate in 2000, George Allen continued to advocate policies to make Virginia and America a leader in innovation and technology. And on this note, we extend to Governor George Allen a warm welcome to America's Roundtable. A good morning and welcome, sir. Welcome, Governor Allen. Thank you, Joel. It's great to be with you and Natasha and all your great listeners all across freedom-loving America. Well, Governor Allen, we truly appreciate your tireless efforts in advancing principles that strengthen our free society, and most at this stage would be willing to take it easy, yet your perseverance in advancing our shared values inspires us all. You were on the campaign trail with, uh, at that time, candidate Glenn Youngkin, who is now the governor of Virginia, and you campaigned for him throughout the Commonwealth, and also for Jan Kiggins, who will be sworn in as Congresswoman in January. So I'd like to share these two quotes from one of our favorite American founding fathers, actually, and I shall quote, Determine never to be idle. No person will have the occasion to complain of the want of time who never loses any. And the last quote, It is wonderful how much may be done if we are always doing. And these words were relayed by Thomas Jefferson. Oh, that's a great quote. Please, uh, when we're through this, send me that as well. That's that's good. I could uh, use that because uh, you know Thomas Jefferson stayed involved until he died on on uh, July the fourth in eighteen twenty six fifty years to the day after the Declaration of Independence and uh, so did John Adams. In fact, people will say, "Well, when are you going to stop advocating for all this?" I said, "I'll be on my deathbed and saying we got to change this. We need to innovate this or stop doing things the same old way. Here's a more principled way to improve opportunities for all." So. That's why I enjoy being with you, Joel and Natasha, and what you do to keep people informed and educated and and active rather than just being one who doesn't question authority, but in fact, make things better. And I have behind me, you can't see it on the radio, uh, but uh, Ronald Reagan's quote, if not 
now when, if not us, who? And those are words of action that should apply to all people to, to constantly work to make this a, a more competitive, safer, better educated, and more prosperous country. Absolutely, Governor Allen. Governor Allen, Republicans retook the House majority in the 2022 midterms. And what are the key priorities that you would recommend to the U.S. House Republican leadership for the year 2023? I would focus on the things that people care about. Most Americans think our country is going in the wrong direction. And why do they think it's going in the wrong direction? Mostly because of economic issues, higher cost of food and electricity and fuel. They're concerned about safety in their communities. Some of these are state issues as opposed to federal issues. But one of the responsibilities, the paramount responsibility of the federal government is national defense. And part of that is controlling the border. So that would be a priority. The key thing they need to do is unleash the blessings of our plentiful American energy resources. We have more natural gas, more coal, more oil than any other country in the world. And it's not a curse. It is a blessing. And if we unleash that, that that'll reduce the cost of our fuel, our electricity. It'll help our balance of trade. It'll help our allies. Many of those, especially in Europe, that are going to have a tough winter because there's captive customers of Russian natural gas. And so that it doesn't have to be this way. And the just illogical, and that's a nice word, the actual word should be idiotic energy policies of the Biden administration where they're now getting oil from Venezuela to prop up that dictatorship. How about letting folks say, hey, we want to get more oil and gas out of the Gulf or out of Texas or Louisiana or Oklahoma or Wyoming, North Dakota, we have it, and Alaska uh, as well. So so we need to do that, and they need to take the lead doing it. Now, there could be some, they'll say, Biden will veto this, or the Democrats won't vote for it. Well, you're not elected to be a stump. You're elected to do something and, and pass it. And, if it. and if the Democrats vote against it, use it against them in the next election. If the president vetoes it, so be it. The point is people don't trust either party and they don't and they want to see things getting done. And I think that uh, productive energy policy will help so much because energy is the lifeblood of our economy. They also ought to be making sure we have better border controls, funding of, of the wall and policies. Instead of uh, tens of thousands of IRS agents, say we're going to hire more border security on our southern border. Vote to make the tax cuts of 2017 permanent. I think they need a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. The debt is just skyrocketing. And soon, if interest rates keep going up, the highest item is could be as much as a third of the spending will be paying debt, paying the interest on the debt. And I think that in the military needs, we need replenishment. We'll probably talk about Ukraine, but our military is, is obviously the paramount responsibility of the federal government. And I think they ought to stop the, the, the stupid vaccine mandates that we're discharging healthy men and women in our military because they didn't want to take a vaccine test. So I think those are their top priorities. They can use the RAINS Act uh, to stop regulations. That's where Congress can rein in regulations. And the Biden administration is using a lot of regulatory approaches rather than legislative approaches. But Congress has this RAINS Act that can can uh, repeal 
bad regulations that are unnecessarily burdensome and costly to the American people and small businesses. Uh, Governor Allen, you touched on the U.S. southern border. Uh, how should conservatives engage with Americans concerned about skyrocketing crime in America, illegal immigration, and what policies can states enact to improve safety, which leads to reducing the cost of living and improving the business environment, thus making their state more attractive and prosperous? All right. Well, the states, obviously, Texas and Arizona in particular, are two states that have done as best they can to protect their citizens and, and using their National Guard and sending more folks to the border there. I think what the states can do is a federal responsibility, national security. And I think we ought to find common ground on controlling the border. And it's more than the illegal immigration is one thing. The one thing that I think unites a lot of folks, and, and you find it, I don't care if you're in cities, suburbs, or out in the country, is this fentanyl that's coming in. It is deadly. In fact, our attorney general in Virginia, Jason Miaris, wants to be able to sue not only the manufacturers, but but anybody who distributes this, you could have a murder charge against them because it's so deadly. And people are dying. Just hundreds are dying every single week. From this, and so this this is a national security issue. The states, I think, the border states all realize what a problem it is, and it's and it's not just Texas that is getting, or Arizona, or California, or New Mexico that are getting fentanyl, and it's everywhere in this whole country. So, to me, that needs to be done now, and, and how it needs to be done is controlling the border, and what ultimately I think the goals should be. It's controlling the border where we decide who comes in and uh, into our country. And I'd love to see Republicans talking about a merit-based immigration system. Both of y'all are immigrants or your families were. My mother's an immigrant from Tunisia and North Africa. Uh, so our country's been, been built and improved by immigrants. And we want more immigration into our country, but it ought to be merit-based. But first, before you can get to any of that, you need to control the border, because if, if you reward illegal behavior, you'll get more illegal behavior. And what's going on now is just just such a disgrace and so dangerous to folks. But that's why I think building the wall, controlling the border, putting the policies that were in place before this administration. And then once you do that, I think you can really, I, I would hope, get a merit-based immigration system where we welcome people in who want to, obviously people want to be in our country, but that's not the only, the only aspect. The other aspect is we, we need people in our country to work, but we want to make sure that they're going to contribute to society and help our whole country and they prosper as well as the whole community. Right. And then also we come to the market competition, which is important because it drives prices of products and services down while improving their quality. Correct. Similarly, competition between the states yep. gradually improves the cost of living for all the states yep. and their consumers. Uh, in its study, America's Top States for Business in 2022, CNBC scored all 50 states on 88 metrics in 10 broad categories of competitiveness. North Carolina was ranked first. Virginia's overall ranking was third, compared to Michigan, where we also broadcast, which was ranked 16, and Mississippi, which was ranked the 50th. In the cost of doing business category, Virginia slightly improved and climbed up from 26th to 25th place in 2022. On cost of living, Virginia improved and climbed up from 32nd to 30th. 
However, the significant boost for Virginia came in its infrastructure rating, where it climbed from 24th to 9th place. Governor Allen, the competition between the states shows that the states that cut taxes and streamline regulation attract most businesses and jobs. Well-developed infrastructure also plays a significant role. How would you prioritize the policies and next steps to make Virginia more competitive? Great question. And by the way, CNBC is fine as a ranking, but I don't find it to be the most probative. Uh, they have a lot of things in there that are kind of uh, fluff. The best ranking by far, and I've talked to Scott Walker about this, former governor of Wisconsin. Uh, I was speaking at Reagan's boyhood home in Dixon, Illinois, for the Young America's Foundation. And what I use is, is what's called Chief Executive Magazine where they survey well over about 800 or so chief executives. Uh, and they're the ones who actually make the site location decisions, where they're going to invest their money. And the states that are, are they rank them, and it's annual, ranking the best and worst states for business. And year after year, the top three states in order, number one, Texas. They've been number one for 18 years. Number two, Florida. Number three, Tennessee. And why are those? What do those states have in common? Zero state income, income tax. tax yeah. Uh, and North Carolina is fifth. Arizona is now fourth because they cut taxes. North Carolina is cutting taxes. Indiana, Ohio, Nevada, South Dakota, Utah, Georgia, South Carolina, Colorado, Virginia is fourteenth. Now, and if you could kindly compare maybe Michigan and Mississippi that we mentioned in this other survey, how do they rate in this survey? Michigan in this one is rated 18th. The Mississippi's ranked 38th. Right. Now, when they ask them what matters most, which is really, then, then you figure out what the policy needs to be. They ask, number one is tax policy. What's your cost of taxes? Close second were regulatory costs. And that's it's a variety of things. That includes right to work law, workers' comp, litigation. And the number three key issue was a skilled, capable workforce. So if you put it together, the states that are the best states for business are those that have comparatively lower cost of doing business. That means lower taxes, reasonable regulations, prompt permitting, also a right to work law. If you don't have a right to work law, you're not even on the field of competition to lose. Right. And Virginia preferred the state north on the eastern seaboard with a right to work law. And that matters for logistics. So you can have a business, you talk about infrastructure, ports, airports, roads, rail, uh, natural gas pipelines, access to, to, to water, and, and various other uh, utilities are very, very important. The cost of electricity is a, a big factor. But right to work law really matters. It means you have better labor management uh, relationships. And then the other key thing is a skilled, capable workforce. Uh, there are so many job openings in manufacturing and a lot of businesses, everything from hospitality to manufacturing. Uh, but if if you have a skilled, capable workforce, low taxes, you know, comparatively, right to work laws, prompt permitting, those are the states that are winning. And you could guess what the worst states for business are: California, New York, Illinois, New Jersey, Washington, Oregon, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Hawaii. And those states particularly California, New York, Illinois, New Jersey, they're losing population. You have freedom of movement in America. And people are moving to where the cost of living is less. There's more prosperity or opportunities for prosperity. And that's why 
states like like Florida and Texas and Arizona, Nevada. Nevada has no state income tax. So there's a lot of people moving from California uh, to Nevada and Arizona and other Western states. Utah is a really well-governed state. Michigan, they're going to have an issue for Michigan. I just was with the leader of the uh, Republican Senate in, in uh, Michigan, and they, they put in a right-to-work law under Governor Snyder, which they were sick of getting beat for automotive jobs by uh, Tennessee and, and Alabama and Georgia and so forth. And so they, they passed a right-to-work law, and they're worried that they may try to repeal it. Indiana passed a right-to-work law, and it's made it a very attractive state because of their lower taxes, a skilled workforce with a good work ethic. And, and Michigan needs to keep that right to work law if they want to stay competitive. I Heck, I have a Ford Bronco that's made in Michigan. <laughs> uh, some of the parts were from China, which meant there was a delay, delay in getting it. <laughs> right. And when you mention right yeah. to work law, actually, there's another layer of it during COVID. And then when we look at Florida, it was one of the states that has excelled in reducing taxes, streamlining regulation, kept businesses and schools mostly open during the pandemic. Yeah. And when we look yeah. at the U.S. Census, Florida tops the list in the absolute numbers of net domestic migration and net international migration yep. with over 220,000 people moving into Florida, net migration from 2020 to 2021. Yeah, that's a good point. This is another metric I use, Natasha. And one of the reasons South Dakota and some of these states went up higher in this chief executive magazine is they stayed open. Right. They didn't have these governors making these decrees, which I consider arrogant that anybody in government would actually say that some business is non-essential. Right. Every business is essential to those who operate and work in it. And in fact, I look at the, the job recoveries in various states and the states, you know, you take the what the, what the jobs were in February of 2020 to present and the states that are that stayed open Utah Idaho Texas Montana Tennessee uh Georgia Florida Arizona South Dakota those states are really the, the percentage jobs are more than 100% of where they were before and the states that were closed are in fact Virginia with governor Yunkin is finally getting liberated and has finally got to the to the number of jobs they had then. Meanwhile, Florida and Georgia and Texas and Tennessee and South Dakota, those states that stayed open attracted more people. And Florida, of course, again, they, with, with no state income tax, Florida and Texas and these states, again, they have a great system of higher education, great community colleges. They have great worker training programs. No state income taxes. They're very pro-business. They're very entrepreneurial and very competitive. And I always like to point out that AOC's mother moved to Florida. So she's more <laughs> economically literate than her daughter. Exactly. <laughs> and absolutely. Governor Allen, recently Natasha and I had a dinner with a U.S. Army chaplain. One of the topics he shared was his concern about recruiting Americans into our military ranks. Uh, and I quote a media report that stated that uh, basic standards to enlist in the military is also shrinking. Only 23% of Americans aged 17 to 24 are eligible to join without being granted a waiver. And that is down from 29% in recent years. That's coming from the Pentagon. And recently, the Wall Street Journal 
shared this piece titled, Americans are losing trust in the military, and it states, I quote, the Reagan Institute releases an annual survey of public attitudes on national defense, and this year, only 48% reported having a great deal of confidence in the U.S. military in results first detailed here. And that's down from 70% in 2018, and within the margin era of last year's 45%. Governor Allen, what are your thoughts regarding the causes of this major decline in our fellow Americans when they view our military strength? And what are your observations of the realities on the ground that are perhaps weakening the military from within as we face an emboldened China and unpredictable Russia, North Korea, and Iran? All good points. And, you know, in this survey you're, you're citing here, Joe, is, is consistent with other surveys. Uh, Pew Research also did these surveys, and they noted a 14% drop since 2020 uh, in Americans who said they have a great deal of confidence in the military to act in the public's interests. And so what I think the problem is, it's not the men and women, it is the leadership. And they see uh, in the military, it's getting politicized. Uh, you mentioned the lower standards. They're lowering it. It's a volunteer service. But to get more people in, they have dropped the standards, educational standards and physical standards. You have the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff a few years ago who was posed the question, what's our greatest threat as far as the military is concerned? His answer wasn't North Korea, Russia, terrorists, China, Iran, none of that. His, his answer was the greatest threat was climate change. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. this shows the politicization of, of these folks who end up at the higher ranks, and it's the leadership. Then the most recent is this forcing of, of healthy young men and women who are serving in our military to get a vaccine. And if they don't get the vaccine, they were dismissed. And so we're, they're already not meeting their quotas as far as you know the, the, the troop strength, whether it's sailors, aviators, Marines, and sailors. And here you are knocking out perfectly healthy people because they didn't want to get a vaccine for, for a disease that is not a threat to them. I'm not saying that uh, COVID is not a threat. It's a threat to people who are older or those who have these underlying conditions. The, the overreaction to this fear uh, of, of COVID, you know, you, you look at these colleges that force athletes and the, and the pros forcing athletes to get these vaccines or, or having all these protocols. Not a single one of them has been hospitalized, much less dying. So, I, I'm, I'm not against vaccines. I think originally uh, vaccines made sense, but it's a personal choice. I love what Tennessee did, by the way. They passed a law that prohibited any state agency or any private company from forcing a vaccine mandate on their employees. So the point is for the military, they've been politicized. One of the great things about the military and sports is that they're a meritocracy. You don't care about someone's race, religion, ethnicity, where they're from. Can they do the job? You know, in, in sports is, you know, can you shoot baskets? Can you block? Can you tackle? Can you kick? Uh, and in the military, can you shoot? Can you do the job? And so if they start making this, you know, wanting to have the so-called equity and quotas of, of all of this rather than a meritocracy, that's why it's, it's weakened. It's also similarly in trying to having a difficult time in recruiting people, our armed forces are, are experiencing that these days. Also, we see that in law enforcement, where law enforcement with this defund the police and putting all sorts of unnecessary burdens on law officers, 
uh, is making it hard to retain and recruit law enforcement. So people appreciate law officers. People appreciate the men and women in our military. They have great equipment. They can do the job. The leadership needs to let them do it and not, not turn it into a political experiment with all these uh, political type of, of, of decisions, which are really not related to the safety of the troops or our country. Governor Allen, just this last uh, brief question in regard to the Abram Accords, which has been a successful endeavor. And interestingly enough, uh, we have seen this news being underreported in the United States, not even the mention of the UAE-Israel trade deal, uh, which is uh, reported that over the next five years, it'll be $10 billion worth of trade. And some 400 million consumers are out there in the Arab-led countries, but the U.S. is not really involved and engaged in trade and investments with this growing population. Governor Allen, what can America's conservative leaders do to expand the Abram Accords, and what steps could be taken by the conservative movement to shore up greater interest in this successful initiative, which is transforming the Middle East and shoring up trade, peace, and prosperity in the region and beyond? Well, I think the Abraham Accords are, are just truly historical and wonderful. And I think it's one of the successes of the Trump administration. I'm not going to get into the manners and personalities, but just look at the policy there. And having those Gulf states, those countries that are more moderate, let's say, than, than others, having those trade relations with Israel are great. Jordan was the lead in that. We had the free trade agreement we had with, with Jordan. I think it just makes a great deal of sense if if our worry, which is Israel's worry of Iran getting nuclear capabilities, nuclear weapons capabilities, and they still are a state sponsor of terror, it is very helpful that whether Israel has agreements with UAE, with Kuwait, with, with Qatar, whoever, even Saudi Arabia, this ought to be built upon encouraged and find ways that this collaboration is not just beneficial for these Mideastern countries, including Israel, but how it's beneficial for the United States. And and I think that Congress, you know, it's hard for a member of Congress to, to lead these, but they can bring attention to it. And I could see some divergence. And I'm glad Bibi Netanyahu's been reelected in Israel. He's an articulate, smart leader. And I think that to the extent that there can be some differences between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu administration representing their respective countries, you need to respect uh, Israel's sovereignty, that sometimes there is a divergence. Mm. You hate it. You, you don't want to have any any space between the U.S. and Israel. But Israel does have to worry about their sovereignty and their security. And if the Biden administration isn't going to be on their side, I think it's incumbent on members of Congress, regardless of party, to stand with, with like Israel, which I consider a wellspring in the wilderness as far as the, the Middle East is concerned. So uh, a lot of this has to do with you know educating and informing people of what your radio show does it. But others need to, to do it as well because it's not getting out uh, the benefits of these Abraham Accords. And probably it's, I don't know why, but... Natasha and I were talking about education earlier, and you know the, the historical illiteracy of people, geographic illiteracy, all of that starts in the states, which is the top responsibility of the states, along with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And the way you pay for it is with a vibrant economy where businesses are prospering, people are working and paying taxes. And so we, we need to have high academic standards and accountability. And let me finish with this. 
this is what I'd love to see. And Tennessee has done this. I didn't realize it till to this week because I've always said that people graduating from college, I thought they would be too tough for high school, but they should have to pass the same exam that immigrants have to pass to become citizens of the United States. It just makes so much sense. And then I just read this week that Tennessee is requiring that for graduation from high school. I'm going to be speaking tonight at the Coastal Virginia Chamber of Commerce. And I'm going to bring this up. And if you have to pass that test to graduate from high school, because most colleges don't require history to graduate. So if you say, look, this is what immigrants need to learn about the history, the civics, right, how right. about America. Cannot American high school kids learn that as a, as a condition of graduation? To me, that is a great perfect standard right. uh, for our schools. And with that, they'll be better informed citizens. Yeah, they would recognize actually the erosion of the rule of law mm. and the problems with current non-existence between the three branches of government. They're <laughs> all kind of emerging in one in a regulatory body, unfortunately. Yeah, which is wrong. Exactly. You're, you're right. But most kids, you know, these surveys, you, you, Joel, you're talking about the survey about people losing faith in, in our military. You take these surveys, I'm, you know, with the Young America's Foundation and Reagan Ranch Presidential Scholar, and we do these surveys. Young people, they, they can't even define socialism. They think it means being sociable or it means free stuff. Name the three branches of government. You know, they very, maybe half can name the three branches of government and the responsibilities. And so that we can, we care about elections and, and Jefferson, you know, said, if you want to be a country that's free, you also need to be educated. You cannot be ignorant and free. And so we need to make sure that our, our kids graduating from high school understand our country, our, the, the freedom of religion, freedom of expression, private property, the free enterprise system and the rule of law that is for the fair adjudication of disputes and protection of our, our natural God-given rights or right. from our creator. So, and, and then you end up with a more informed population and then you end up with the, from that in a represented democracy, better government right? right. rather than, than people who are have leaders of the military who think that climate change is our greatest national security threat which is just ludicrous. Governor George Allen, we truly appreciate your time, and we will just conclude with these words from Thomas Jefferson, which we shared earlier. It is wonderful how much may be done if we are always doing. Thank you for your continued leadership in advancing our shared values and principles and inspiring and challenging us all to do more. Thank you, Governor Allen. Well, I love being with both of you all. Joel and Natasha, you're the best, and you're always standing positive and strong for freedom. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at America's RT. 
We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable.